or enjoyed their lunch. Quickly before we hop into the Q&A period, I just wanted to make some announcements for SACPA sessions happening next week. So as always, for the Thursday session um, at this location, next week we have topic being, should affordable early learning and childcare centers be widely available for Alberta families? And the speaker will be the Honorable Danielle Larravee, who is the Minister of Child Services. I hope to see you there. And then we also have a special uh, talk happening next Wednesday, actually. Uh, it is called Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Aboriginal Life. The speaker for that will be Dr. James Dashuk. Um, and the location for that event will be the South Minister United Church. And it is a free event happening next Wednesday from 7 to 9 p.m. Um, and so now, if we are ready to go for the Q&A session, um, we can get started. So I will call Dr. Taft back up here. I hope you guys have some riveting questions. We'll have Mike circulated. Um, and excited to hear what everyone has to say. Good afternoon. My name is Henning Mundell. Yes, I was here 21 years ago when you talked about shredding the public image. Uh, yes, I bought your book. Uh, but at that time, you were not yet in partisan politics. And at that time, I was so hopeful that you would join the NDP, which of course you didn't. Now that you haven't, and the history has gone on, suppose you would have joined the NDP Right now that it is in government, which ministry would you have fancied as cabinet position? Oh boy. That's a question I've never had before. Um, well, I suppose uh, it would depend on how, how confident I was in my cabinet colleagues. Um, I should say that I spent a term in the legislature with Rachel Notley and uh, more than one with Brian Mason and I know J Joe CC and Shannon Phillips was a researcher for the New Democrats when I was a Liberal MLA, so I know some of them, very bright, capable people. Um, you know, I'd like to imagine that if I were in Cabinet, of course this is easy to say because I'm not in Cabinet, that I would be pressing for solutions to some of the fundamental problems that Alberta faces. And so we are right now in an, in an unsustainable fiscal situation. Um, I believe clearly there needs to be a sales tax brought in. Um, we need to be careful about our spending. Uh, so those are issues that would land with a finance minister. And if I were finance minister, I would be pressing those kinds of issues as much as I could. The other the other portfolio might be the energy industry. Not that I would be acceptable to, to the industry itself, and they have a lot of say who gets into that position. Um, but I, I, I like to think that maybe I would channel a little bit of the spirit of that cabinet of 1971 to take a little bit tougher stand. And to his credit, people like Ed Stelmack tried that as well. As well. And Ed was essentially driven out 
of, uh, of its own party through a, a very effective campaign in the back rooms by the oil industry because he called for higher royalties. Um, so, you know, I, I might be in either one of those positions, but I might not be in them very long. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Tony Hall, how do you do? Hi, Tony. Hi. Um, I've heard uh, a lot about your book. I look forward to buying it. Uh, I haven't read it, but I hear from discussion that you address quite deeply the issue with universities, mm -hmm. that this uh, influence of a particular lobby goes beyond government to agencies that are supposed to have an arm's length relationship with government. Uh, and uh, I've heard this from Owen Holmes, who's taken quite an interest in my case, and yes. you know the Premier was pressured to intervene in my case in a mm -hmm. very political way in a case that's now in, in, in front of the faculty association process at the University of Lethbridge. She shouldn't be intervening, but she did on political yeah. pressure. Can you talk about what's going on in universities being, uh, and university governance being subjected to this uh, monopoly power in the province? Yes, uh, thanks Tony, that's a good question. I write at length, uh, as you've been told or as you've heard, about the influence of the oil industry on universities, a little bit on the University of Lethbridge, I just kind of skim over that, somewhat more on the University of Alberta in Edmonton, but I particularly focus on the University of Calgary. <laughs> and I mentioned to you that uh, that court case where that young woman, Catherine, helped me get those documents, and it was for illegal lobbying. And that court case actually involved, um, exposed some of the influence over the University of Calgary. In fact, there are so many controversies over so many years at the University of Calgary that it, I could have written a whole book just about those. It's, it, it's sometimes you're left thinking, how could that possibly happen? And, and very good academics have left the University of Calgary. Um, a fellow named Joe Arvai, for example, another named David Keith, gone on to fantastic careers in Harvard and elsewhere because they have run up against the power of the oil industry who doesn't want them to research or do the things that they were doing because those that research exposed some of the concerns that the oil industry doesn't want to be exposed. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know how long you want me to go on about this, but there's, uh, there's a deep concern. I won't go into all the reasons for it, but there's a deep, deep concern that uh, that universities, which are to be um, beacons of free expression and where faculty have uh, protections around what they research and what they say, not to allow them to be goofballs or to do anything they want, but to allow them to challenge the conventional wisdoms that societies otherwise operate under. And if we undercut the universities, and if we curtail their role at doing that, their role to make us uncomfortable, then we actually weaken our democracy and we reinforce the power of the status quo. Thank you. And that started to sound like a lecture or something. So I think I'll stop there, Tony. Thank you.
It's a pleasure to, to hear you, uh, Dr. Taft. I've, uh, I've followed you for a long time. Thank you. And the subject you're talking about, I just wrote a, quite, a, uh, quite a story of, uh, of, of the famous, famous man, Peter Lougheed, of course. And if we were to take a vote and uh, send it to the Premier of Alberta, I think we'd all agree, would you agree, that we, we, we've, we've, we've built a monument at the foot of, the, of, our, of our government uh, on behalf of Peter Lougheed? Because we, if we were to take a vote, I think he is a hero that we should be all blessed about. Yes, I, uh, I have very high regard for Peter Law. He'd like all of us, he's a complicated man. He changed over time, uh, but I don't think he ever lost that commitment. In fact, I'm certain he never lost that commitment to, uh, to the people of Alberta and to, the, to thinking like owners. In fact, there's a, I have a quote of his, um, it's almost... Do you want me to, I, I might be able to read it here. It's, it's almost comical, but I won't be able to, I won't be able to find it quickly enough. But he, yes, he was a, he was a great premier for sure. Thank I'm, you. I'm reluctant about building monuments to anybody, but and by he the would way, be a good one. He would be a good contender if we were going to do that. The last time I talked to the Attorney General to get his idea of exactly what we're getting in royalties, and we're still paying back the foreign oil companies. It amounted to seven to nine percent royalties that we're actually getting, and uh, it's a bloody crime. And that should be written about and uh, and discussed by Albertans because we're still paying the shot for the people, foreign oil companies. Yes, I, you know, there are people who argue that Alberta's royalties are among the lowest in the world. Uh, and there's, again, a quote in here. You're just going to have to buy this book. That's all there is to it. There's a quote in here of Murray Smith, who was an energy one of those energy ministers who came from the industry into that portfolio and then returned to the in industry. And he delivered a speech in Texas. Oh, it would be, you know maybe around 2002 or something, I was able to get the transcript of it, in which he talks about our approach in Alberta is to give away the resource. He, he literally uses that phrase. And the thinking, of course, is if we give it away, we'd get all this, uh, at least the rationale was, if we gave it away, we'd get all this economic development, we'd get a boom. Uh, and we did get a boom. It was a fire sale, and all the world came in to buy our products, which were on a fire sale. But the boom's gone bust, and uh, we're actually, in many ways, worse off because of it. Um, hi. hi, my name's Dave Shepard. Uh, thank you for an excellent talk. It was very informative. Um, I have a question also about the NDP. After they came into government in the first year, they set up a committee to look at royalties. Mm -hmm. and I wondered if you'd comment on what happened there. 
Well, I don't have any inside knowledge, although I've spoken to one person who was on that committee. Uh, essentially, you know, the, the New Democrats for years had been very sharp critics of the government's low royalty regime, as, as the Liberals were when I was there, and as I said earlier, even as Ed Stelmack and some of his own caucus were. People were saying, why are we, why are we giving the oil sands away at a 1% royalty? Even the Tories were saying that. Um, and so when, when Rachel became Premier, and in fairness to her, she didn't expect to become Premier. Nobody expected her to become Premier. She had this long-standing commitment to the party and to the public that when they became government, it's a part of their platform, they'd review the royalties. And so they did that, but they stepped into a position in which everybody around them was already captive. They were, they were surrounded by people who were instruments of the oil industry, in my view. So they're top civil servants, um, the regulator, uh, key academics, and so on, would have all been telling them, oh, just leave it alone. Don't, you know, you don't want to, it's working so well, as Pat Black said, the industry thinks it's perfect. Why would you want to change that? And when that was combined with you know, in fairness to the New Democrats, a, a, a dramatic drop in oil prices, a slowing of the Alberta economy. They just, they just opened up the royalty system, had a quick look, and closed it again and left it alone. And so, as I say, we're in a situation now where the last two years at least, the Alberta government brings in more from casinos and liquor stores than it does uh, from selling bitumen. That's how cheaply we're giving it away. Uh, Dr. Taft, I'm Trevor Page. Uh, lots of people in Lethbridge have heard of the AER, and quite a few in this room were instrumental in preventing an oil company from drilling within our city limits. Mm -hmm. Soon after Rachel Notley was elected, um, and speaking from the same microphone that you're speaking from now. Um, I pointed out that the AER seemed to be above God. And you mentioned that it's 100% financed by, by the oil industry, which it has for a long time, or was for a long time. Now, my question to her is, what are you going to do about it to which she said, we're going to make it better. My question is, is it still financed 100% yeah. by the oil industry? And do you think that since Rachel Notley has been in power, it in fact is better, the AER? So the Alberta, Thank you. The Alberta Energy Regulator, yes, is still 100% financed by the industry. It's a levy that's put on the industry. That was brought in under, I believe, under Ralph Klein's uh, time. Uh, and as I said, my position is he who pays the piper calls the tune. So it continues to be 100% uh, financed by industry. Um, and I've seen uh, quotes and interviews with the Minister of, of uh, Energy, Margaret McQuaig-Boyd, that um, it's, they think the regulator's working just fine and they're leaving it alone. It's essentially unchanged and uh, 
You know, I only <laughs> we could have gone on a lot longer about the energy regulator, but um, I'll stop there. It's 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 essentially it. They don't. The government doesn't want to do anything that disrupts the industry. The industry likes the regulator, so the government's leaving it alone. Hi, Kevin. Are you going to heckle me, Bridget? No, actually I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to warn the room, though, that Kevin is very used to me in being in caucus, and he talks about something. I ask a question, and it is totally off topic, <laughs> totally on some other planet tangent. Anyway. Um, I um, do a lot of driving in my car, my phone's always, I mean my radio's always on CBC, so this is out there, so um, Kevin is very good at handling this. Um, I heard a commentator saying that the pipeline, and I think it was probably out of the oil industry, the pipeline from Alberta to BC isn't just you know, a conversation between Alberta and BC. This is all for Canada. It's all about Canadians. We're all going to benefit, blah, blah, blah. So my, my thought was, why wasn't that conversation uh, attached to the fact that if we had had the Eastern pipeline, which is the one that I supported to begin with, that would keep it in Canada, that would, um, even if we made the Irvings another bazillion dollars, it doesn't matter, at least they're Canadian. Those jobs would have stayed Canadian. The oil would have gone the right way. We would have built ships. We blah blah. I mean, it would have been a mm. real huge, in my mind, a yeah. huge boom. So how come that conversation didn't come up at that point, and now it's just you know being applied to the Alberta BC one? Well, the the politics around pipelines are really complicated, and I, you know, my knowledge is limited. I think if you dug deeply into the Energy East pipeline, which was the one that was going to run east from Alberta through all the way to New Brunswick, where the Irving family has the largest oil refinery in Canada. I think if you dug deep into that, it's such a long pipeline. I forget how many thousand kilometers. It's so expensive to build that at the end of the day, the economics of it didn't add up. So although the industry grumbled about the burden of regulation, and some people say, well, it was just those protesters in Quebec, it didn't really make business sense for the industry. Um, the, there are two, there, there are, there's the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is the one that's causing the great controversy between Alberta and BC. There's the Keystone XL Pipeline, which may or may not be built. And there's a line, a, a huge pipeline, which almost gets no attention, the Line 3 uh, Pipeline, which is being constructed by Enbridge. It's under construction now. It's an expansion of a pipeline from Alberta to, uh, to the northeastern U.S., I think to Wisconsin or Michigan or Minnesota. Anyways, to one of those states. Um, so there's a lot of pipeline activity, and the politics are complicated. I think that the pipeline hysteria has gotten way overheated. I do not believe that it's worth putting our country into a, a constitutional crisis for a pipeline that's owned by a Houston-based company that is going to be pumping raw bitumen, raw unprocessed bitumen stripped from Alberta's forests by foreign-owned companies to be processed in foreign markets. How did this become a constitutional crisis? Pipelines do not 
uh, create huge amounts of jobs. It doesn't take very many, I mean, while they're being built, there's hundreds of jobs. It doesn't take very many people to operate a pipeline. So I just think we should be dampening down the rhetoric around this and putting this back in perspective. Leona Jacobs, um, comment and a question. So the comment, you made, you kind of ended your talk by saying that Lethbridge was, you know, kind of in a little bubble down here because of our diverse economy, which might be so, except that um, some of the major employers are publicly funded institutions yeah. like the University College and healthcare. And every time there was a boom, we got cut, and every time there was a bust, we got cut. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that has the ripple effect out into the community. Yeah. So we're not immune to the ups and downs of the oil industry. So my question has to do with how do we dial this back? So how do we, how do we take it back? How do we get ourselves out of this? I am a supporter of Rachel Notley. I try to take the long view yeah. that in order to get to where we want to go, we have to kind of hold our nose and do some things we don't want to do in order to get the cash so that we can do what we want to do. But at the same time, it seems that we're kind of caught up in a Gordian knot, and I don't know how to cut that knot. So do you have some ideas? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I think, the, um, I think the Gordian knot is going to be cut by people outside of Alberta and outside of Canada. Um, I didn't even mention, I don't think I used the term climate change in my talk at all, but it's actually an important part of my book. Um, while we are committing to bitumen and to oil, uh, leaders around the world in Europe and in China and Japan, California, are committing to making oil obsolete. Um, 2017, last year, Norway became the first country in history in which electric cars outsold internal combustion engine cars. Now, some people say, well, that's Norway, it's just a fluke. Norway, in my view, is the thin edge of the wedge. Mm. Germany has voted to ban internal combustion engines in, in vehicles by 2030. France is on the same path. China is even more aggressive. My strong sense is that over the next decade, the global market for oil is going to uh, it's going to peak in the next year or two, and it's going to soften. And it has to soften because if for no other reason than the science of global warming. And, and we don't need to get into that necessarily, but it is a, it's, um, it's frightening. And every year that we pump more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the future of our children and grandchildren gets more and more grim. And the science around this is very clear, and I, I do spend some time on this. So most of the world gets that. <clears throat> They're committing to the future. When the global market for oil begins to soften, Alberta's economy is going to be even more staggered than it has been in the last few years. And eventually, maybe 10 or 15 years from now, I think the power of the oil industry is going to uh, is going to be broken. I think we might well talk about Suncor and Syncrude in 15 years, the way we talk about Sears or Kodak today. I, I, you know, the oil industry, that's beyond their imagination, but I suspect that's a possibility. And at that point, the whole game has, has changed. It's going to be tough for Lethbridge. It's going to be even tougher for other parts of Alberta. 
What's the future of Fort McMurray, which in the last 30 years has grown to be larger than Lethbridge? What's the future of Fort McMurray when the oil sands don't have a market? Now that's a crisis. Be glad you're not living in Fort McMurray. Douglas Mitchell. I would really like to address, we've been talking a lot about the influence of the oil sands and the, uh, the oil and gas industry in general, but I'm concerned about the more general malaise, and in a sense you've addressed that a little bit in your last answer, but uh, here we've had the oil and gas industry more or less running the province. That's deteriorated somewhat, but not altogether. And as you say, it's going to take time. Tony Hall has mentioned the, the influence uh, within the university system. I sense it now somewhat in the whole environmental system. I do a little bit of environmental mm -hmm. activism. And I feel, again, there is a reluctance to address the real root problems of these issues, but I just to sense the general malaise, and you're saying that it's going to take time for this to resolve itself, but how do you feel about that? The influence that this, what's happened with the oil and gas industry, it's, it's, it's drifted over into other areas yes. of our uh, governance, and how, how would you feel about that? Well, we could get really depressed here. <laughs> um, you know, I give a range of examples. So the, the, there's, at the heart of my book, there's a kind of a model of how democracy works, which is a competition of ideas, a whole lot of different institutions vying with each other, and, and, and the free flow of information, like SACPA facilitates, and eventually some consensus and decisions being made. And my argument is that when all kinds of institutions are held by the same interest, the oil industry, democracy can no longer do that. And so I use examples from a range of institutions. And one that many of you in this room will know, surprisingly, is the healthcare system. I was in, I was in my office at the legislature when my phone rang, and I, got, I was told that the medical officer of health from Palliser Health District in Medicine Hat had been fired for raising concerns about, uh, about global warming in the oil industry. And that was David Swan, who's probably spoken here, I don't know. And I phoned up David, and to my great pleasure, he ended up running for the Alberta, in fact, he became a leader of the Alberta Liberals. But imagine a medical officer of health who is empowered. He is supposed yeah. to be empowered to blow the whistle on anything that seriously affects community health for simply, and, and it, this is also in the book, for simply a small quote in the Medicine Hat newspaper getting fired. And the board chairman being very blunt, he's you know, saying it's worse for Alberta to lose jobs in the industry than to face the consequences of global warming, or words to that effect. Anyway, so, so it's the malaise, as you call it, Mr. Mitchell is widespread. Um, I think, though, if you go to BC, if you go to the lower mainland where there's a more dynamic situation, if you go to California, if you go to uh, Germany and places like that where it's not just dominated by the oil industry, there's a much healthier, more buoyant democracy and much more active debate and much stronger action. And that action 
We're seeing that action in the lower mainland right now. And yeah, I'll stop there. Just quickly, these are going to be our last two questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Taft. Excellent presentation and the dynamics of Alberta and oil politics. <laughs> I would like to just briefly extend uh, uh, Bridget's uh, question about Pipeline East. You know, uh, for the ranting and raving that's going on between Alberta and BC, and you know, Confederation is really, I mean, Canada's supposed to be a confederation, mm -hmm. but Pipeline East makes an awful lot of sense despite cost and so forth. The Eastern Canada refineries are importing, the number I think is 40 or 42 percent of all the oil that's refined. That oil's coming in from Venezuela, U.S., uh, the Gulf. Doesn't it make any sense for Canada, whether it's syncrude or, or whatever, or even bitumen diluted whatever, let Confederation and the governments yeah. along the way support this sure. total, what makes logical sense to replace foreign oil with yes. our own oil. Yes, I, I uh, think that's, that, a, that's let, a logical and a compelling argument. Well, it maybe it wasn't enough to save Energy East Pipeline, but, it, but those decisions aren't made on... No, no. They're made by uh, global financial interests. They're not made in... They're not really made in Canada, particularly. So, I, I mean, it's, uh, they're perfectly legitimate, but it's not going to happen. I'm sadly. <laughs> sadly. Sadly for Confederation and yeah. for the sake... And initially, I think, for the sake of liberal votes in Quebec. You know, I, I, I actually don't think that's the case. I, I just don't think the economics of it ever made, uh, made sense for the industry to earn a high enough return. It's cheaper for them to ship it down to, uh, down to refineries in the U.S. Ready? Sure. Uh, my name's Justin Ellis. Um, I actually work in Fort McMurray and I work for I worked for uh, uh, the oil sands industry, and uh, I'm just talking f uh, about myself here. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Uh, I was wondering if you could provide a spoiler, though. Um, so you, you mentioned, and, and you, look, you, you look back on uh, Peter Lougheed as developing, developing our, our leading to the development of the uh, oil sands resource in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite Lethbridge not having direct ties to the oil, as previous commenters have, have pointed out, uh, top 10 employers employ 80% of the people in this city, and that's the university, the college, the hospital, the federal government, the, or the, the provincial building. It's all government. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, I'm just wondering uh, if if we're already ten billion dollars uh, down uh, and borrowing ten billion dollars a year just to pay to keep yeah. the lights on in the groceries, yeah. Yeah. and we want to get rid of oil or discourage oil or continue to accept a discount of twenty dollars per barrel against WTI because we don't have a pipeline to the to the coast, eventually something's got to give. 
we either, we've either got to cut somewhere, or, or like you suggest, PST, a 1% PST will bring in $2 billion. So, uh, and where's that money going to come from if, if there's a whole bunch of people out of work? So what I'm wondering is, if we're owners of the third largest resource of oil in the world, which is used for paints, plastics, medicine, uh, chairs, cars, everything around you, you, you couldn't use without plastic. I agree that burning oil in your vehicle, where 60% of the energy created is dissipated as heat into the atmosphere is a waste. Yep. But we, we, need, we need to find ways to, to get this oil out to, so that we can grow Alberta. So I'm wondering, during the presentation you mentioned we're owners, so I would think that owners would want to, to grow this resource and benefit from it to use it to build windmills and, and all that other stuff. Or do we want to squeeze the owners that are already leaving this, this country to go to other places like Nigeria and, and uh, U.S. Where, where it's cheaper to produce oil? Or do we just want to shut it down right now? Because if we shut it down right now, uh, we could change our lifestyle dramatically. We could start bringing in more oil from Saudi Arabia. And we'd, build a, we'd build that Energy East pipeline, but it would be bringing oil to us instead right. of oil going there. So I'm just wondering, is it owners? Uh, capitalizing on this to increase uh, society for future generations or is it cut it out altogether or is it squeeze them and, and die a slow death? <laughs> Justin, great points and I, I'm glad you come up here and you're bringing, bringing a really important perspective, the lived experience. Um, so first of all, I'm not advocating shutting down the oil sands right now. I think that's just not, doesn't make any sense. Um, ten years ago, or yeah, ten years ago right now, I was on the campaign trail uh, advocating for more upgrading, for example, to be done in Canada. I had a policy which Bridget might remember called the Western Tiger in which I was saying, why are we exporting all this raw bitumen to, to the United States at, at that time where it's upgraded? Why aren't we upgrading it in Alberta or in other parts of Canada? The world has moved on in those 10 years. Just in my feeling, you know, in, the, in North America, about 70% of oil is used to power vehicles. Um, certainly it's used to make plastics and cosmetics and medicines. That's a tiny, tiny bit of what's produced. Um, the industry, in my view, and I'm putting this out there, and if you have me back in 10 years, You'll be able to see if I'm right or wrong. But the industry, in my view, is peaked and is going to be phased out. And it will either be phased out on somebody else's terms as the global markets start to uh, shrink, in which case we'll be stuck with those unfunded environmental liability. We as the taxpayers. Fort McMurray will become... Uh, you know, a, a deeply depressed economic center. Um, or we start planning now and we start saying, listen, we'll keep the oil sands going while we can, but we need to begin facing the reality that the oil industry is not going to be uh, in 15 years or in 10 years, maybe even five years what it is today. Alberta's in for a tough time. We can't afford to keep living. You're right, Justin, we can't afford to keep living the way we have been, uh, without dramatic cutbacks or a significant increase in taxes. 
we're in a we're in a tough spot, and you've put your finger on some of that. But I think the oil industries, um, the the investors in the oil industry are going to be living very well long after the oil industry and the oil workers in Alberta and the taxpayers are in Alberta uh, are still paying the price. <laughs> That's for a later SACPA session, but thank you. Thank you, audience, for the questions. Very engaging, and as always, excellent answers. Um, Dr. Taft, I was hoping you could maybe give us a question to ponder and take home with. Oh, wow. A question to ponder and take home with. Um, I guess the question, you know, in a couple of months, I'm going to become a grandfather for the first time. So I'm going to leave this question with you. What world would you like your grandchildren to grow up in? It's a great question. Thank you, Dr. Taft. <laughs>